This is Tax Talk Today, the tax show for the tax pro. Today's program, International Tax Issues, Understanding Tax Treaties. Hello, I'm Phyllis Grimes, and welcome to Tax Talk Today, a series of programs brought to you by the Internal Revenue Service. The Tax Talk Today series provides you, the tax professional, with the opportunity to interact directly with representatives of the IRS and practicing professionals on current tax issues. In addition, viewing the Tax Talk Today series is an easy way to earn continuing education credits. You can purchase CE credits through the Tax Talk Today store and earn one credit for today's program. You will need the course number, which is given at the end of the program, so don't forget to jot it down. Also, we want your questions throughout today's program, so please email your questions to questions at TaxTalkToday.tv. If you have not already done so, visit the resource section of our website. We have posted an outline for today's program as well as additional valuable information. Before we begin today's program, we wanted to let you know that we made a clarification to a statement made by one of the panelists from the January program. The statement is regarding joint venture election on a real estate rental trade or business. For more information, go to Tax Talk Today and click on News. Now, let's get on to today's program, International Tax Issues, Understanding Tax Treaties. In our global economy, more individuals and small businesses are involved in overseas employment and cross-border transactions. At the same time, more non-residents are coming to the U.S. to work, study, and teach. U.S. tax treaties with over 60 countries can reduce tax and eliminate double tax for your clients. Today, our panelists will discuss how to apply tax treaties to U.S. returns, how to get treaty benefits in foreign countries, and how to avoid common compliance problems related to treaty provisions. So let's join our first panel. Today's moderator is Les Whitmer. Les brings to Tax Talk Today 23 years of experience with the IRS and is currently a communications consultant in Atlanta. Joining Les is Anthony Johnstone, tax treaty analyst for the large and mid-sized business division of the Internal Revenue Service, and Marty Sartipi, Globalization Strategy and Policy Program Manager, also with the large and mid-sized business division of the Internal Revenue Service. The complete bios for our guests are on the Tax Talk Today website. Les? Thanks, Phyllis. Globalization is a word that we hear almost every night on the news, whether it's coming from the mouth of a presidential candidate or one of the many financial experts who are commenting on the sagging economy. But regardless, I guess we do all live and work and transact in what's become a borderless international world that affects taxpayers across the, uh, across the world. But it also has an impact, uh, Marty, on the IRS and how you do business and how you're dealing with emerging international issues, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, international issues used to be a specialized area for IRS, and it only affected a few large companies for the most part. Today, international issues are common for individuals, for small and mid-sized businesses, as well as the large businesses. So it, we have to change the way we do business. And to do that, we've developed what we call a service-wide approach to international tax administration to try to integrate some of the international issues into our day-to-day -day operations. Tax treaties are a key component of that. Tax treaties uh, really are the means by which taxpayers are able to, um, to structure their transactions overseas, these cross-border transactions. So it's very important for us. What, what's the makeup of the tax treaty? What do, they, uh, what do they really do? Well, treaties are really intended to encourage investment, to encourage these cross-border transactions. And they, they do that in a couple of ways. One is that they provide for reduced rates of tax on certain types of income uh, on cross-border type investments or transactions. And they also eliminate double taxation for the most part, not always, but generally, they will eliminate double taxation where taxpayers have, would normally pay tax in both countries, the country of residence or citizenship, as well as the foreign country, the source of the income. The treaty will eliminate or provide for uh, a reduction in the double taxation. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I guess a basic question is, is uh, where do these treaties come from? How, how do they come about? Well, they, they first start out really as discussions where we have a significant amount of uh, U.S. investment in a foreign country and where the tax structure of that foreign country might make it difficult or very burdensome to do business there. Uh, we will begin to talk with, with the business community and with the, the foreign country about the potential for a treaty. These treaties are actually negotiated by, uh, by the Department of Treasury, and, and they are structured based on a U.S. model treaty, which is the starting point. But they, they begin with the discussions based on the interest that's expressed by either the business community or by the foreign country in developing this kind of an agreement. Tony, how, how do these treaties apply? Do they really impose taxes? No, uh, treaties are applied in two ways. Um, the first way is a tax treaty can reduce the U.S. tax for a foreign resident. And the second way is a tax treaty can reduce the foreign tax for a U.S. resident. And in both cases, I use the word reduce. A treaty can never increase tax. Uh, in the case of a foreign resident, a foreign resident to get treaty benefits in the United States must, must provide documentation to a withholding agent, normally the payor of some type of income, that they qualify for tax treaty benefits. Uh, if there's a 30% withholding unless the non-resident files a form with the withholding agent, and there are basically two types of forms they would file. First one is Form 8233, which is an exemption from withholding on compensation of a non-resident. And the second form is a form W-8, which is a certificate of foreign status. Now, the, for, the form W-8 is a series of forms, and the most common being a form W-8-BEN, B-E-N, which stands for benefit of income. Now, the withholding agent must follow some presumption rules. If the withholding agent cannot reliably associate a payment with valid documentation, then they must legally withhold 30%. If they don't do that, then they could be liable for the tax, interest, and penalties. In the case of a U.S. resident, U.S. residents should file similar documentation in a foreign country for tax treaty benefits. In addition, some countries require a certification of residency, especially the European countries. So if a U.S. resident needs a cert cert certification, they would file Form 8802, Application for U.S. Residency cert Certification with the Philadelphia Service Center, along with a user fee. And if the certification is approved, the Service Center will issue a Form 6166, which is a letter from the IRS certifying the residency of the U.S. resident. I want to point out that you must be a U.S. resident, not strictly a U.S. citizen, to get this type of uh, certification. If you were no longer a resident in the United States, even though you are a citizen, the service center will not issue that type of uh, form. Can a U.S. citizen use a tax treaty to reduce taxes? Well, ordinarily, U.S. citizens and U.S. residents are taxed on their worldwide income, and they cannot use a tax treaty to reduce their U.S. tax on their U.S. source income. Most U.S. treaties contain a so-called saving clause, which using the saving clause that treats a U.S. resident as if there was no treaty in force. There are some exceptions to the saving clause. A good example is teachers and students, which are, have an exception to saving clauses, and we will talk about those later. Okay. All right. Let's then spend a little bit more time looking at uh, the, the treaties themselves, uh, Marty. What, what does it look like? What is a treaty? You know, how is it made up? What, is a, what makes up a treaty? Uh, well, the, we begin as a starting point with the U.S. model treaty and, and then from there negotiate with individual countries on specific provisions. But the treaty will contain various articles, each related to a certain type of income or a certain uh, procedure or app, uh, um, provision of the treaty, for example, exchange of information. That's one thing I didn't mention earlier. We do, we do have with our treaty partners a provision where we will exchange or share information related to compliance issues. Uh, but you, you have uh, over 60 treaties right now. They all contain similar information because they address each type of income and provisions like exchange of information, but they are not identical. They're unique to each of the, the different countries. 
Um, they are not especially easy to understand. Uh, if you try to read a tax treaty, it's sort of like trying to read the Internal Revenue Code. It does not read like a good novel. Um, but we do have what's called a technical explanation, which tries to put into layman's language somewhat what the provisions or the articles of the treaty are, are saying, how to interpret and apply those provisions. You can find these on the irs.gov uh, website. If you do a search under tax treaty, it will give you a uh, location that has all of the tax treaties and the, and the technical explanations. Another good way to try to understand the, the provisions of the treaty is to look at the Pub 901. It's a publication on tax treaties that gives a good, a good summary of the key provisions of each of the treaties. Uh, and both of those, the website as well as the publication 901, are mentioned on our resource page. So it's a good idea to consult with those. One point I want to make about the publication 901, although it's much easier than the treaty to understand, treaties are very dynamic. The, the United States is always in the process of either negotiating new treaties or updating existing ones. So the publication 901 may not contain very recent treaty information. It's best to go to the irs.gov website for that. Tony, what's the uh, uh, difference between the, the tax treaty and U.S. tax law? Uh, well, U.S. tax law is the law that uh, the, the domestic law that we, the IRS uses to tax its citizens, residents, non-residents. However, in certain circumstances, a tax treaty can uh, either reduce or eliminate U.S. taxes in certain type of incomes. If that happens, the taxpayer should file a Form 8833, which is a treaty-based return position form, attach it to your original return. This, this form is a mandatory form unless an exception applies to filing the form. And you would look to Code Section 6114 and its regulations to see the list of exceptions for not filing the 8833. Now, as I said, the 8833 is mandatory. It must be filed, required, and if it's not uh, included with the original return, a penalty of $1,000 for an individual or $10,000 for a corporation will be assessed. Okay. Marty talked about uh, the uh, website and where you can get some of the information and some of the publications that, uh, that, that govern our, our talk about this. That's all on our resource page. If you haven't checked the resource page, please, uh, please do so. We put a lot of information there. Thanks for a very interesting overview of, uh, of our tax treaty uh, program, and we'll get into more of a discussion on that. But first, we want to go back to Phyllis for the headline news. Are the top stories from the IRS. New tax treaty and protocol enter into force. As you will learn on today's program, the world of tax treaties is not a static one. On December 28, 2007, a new treaty between the U.S. and Belgium to avoid double taxation entered into force. While the treaty addresses many issues, it is the first income tax treaty concluded by the U.S to contain a binding arbitration process as part of the mutual agreement procedure with a foreign country. At the same time, a protocol or amendment to the tax treaty with Germany went into force. It also contains a similar provision for binding arbitration. The arbitration process will be simple and part of the standard mutual agreement procedure. It begins with negotiation and will be used when the competent authorities can't reach agreement after two years. The determination of the arbitration board will be mandatory and binding for the governments. Additionally, the board will not prepare a written decision and its determination will not set precedent. E-file extensions for last-minute clients. Those last-minute clients who need your services too close to the April 15th tax filing deadline have another option you can file an extension request for them. Filing an extension request gives taxpayers another six months to get their financial information in order. The IRS allows the extra time to prepare and file tax returns as long as the extension is requested before midnight April 15th. The six-month extension to October 15th is then automatically granted. Last year, more than 9 million extension requests were made. You can make your work easier by e-filing your client's extension request. It's a simple process. Just use your tax preparer pen 
and select Extension on the e-file software. There is no need to send in Form 4868, Application for Automatic Extension of Time to File U.S. Individual Income Tax Return, and you will receive an online acknowledgement that the IRS has received the request. For taxpayers who need more time, Electronic filing of their extension request is the fastest and most reliable way to go. For more information, visit www.irs.gov efile. Don't ignore a special letter from the IRS. IRS has begun mailings to more than 130 million Americans reminding them to file a 2007 tax return in order to receive a 2008 economic stimulus payment. The mailings will continue throughout the month. The informational notice, titled Economic Stimulus Payment Notice, alerts people that they may be eligible for a one-time stimulus payment of up to $600 or $1,200 married filing jointly, starting in May. There also is a $300 per child payment for qualifying children younger than 17. The notice is informational and does not seek any financial information. The main mailings, which will take place in three weekly batches, will go to taxpayers who filed a tax return last year. However, some people must take an extra step this year to receive a stimulus payment. In late March, the IRS will send a special mailing to certain recipients of Social Security and Veterans Affairs benefits. Generally, those benefits are non-taxable and recipients do not file tax returns. But in order to receive a stimulus payment, people in this group need to file a tax return if they have at least $3,000 from a combination of certain Social Security benefits, veterans benefits, and earned income. The minimum stimulus payment for these people is $300 or $600 for married filing jointly. See News Release IR-2008-28 for more information. Now let's continue our conversation on international tax treaties. Joining the panel are Paula Singer, Chairman of Windstar Technologies and a partner at Bakovic, Mayotte and Singer, LLP in Newton, Massachusetts, and Donald Walter, a CPA and principal at GlobalTaxHelp.com in Seattle, Washington. Les? Thanks, Phyllis. Welcome to both of you. Paul, I know you've been involved in uh, in this area for uh, uh, some time and have extensive experience in it. Uh, over the years, how has this changed? What has the practitioner seen? Well, um, from a practitioner viewpoint, uh, it's it's easier to get information about treaties nowadays than it ever was before. Uh, when I started, everything was on paper. You couldn't search the paper without reading it all. Uh, and um, and even the, many of the online services didn't have the treaties available. So it, it was a very labor-intensive uh, practice to deal with trying to figure out what was going on there. More recently, the, the uh, biggest changes that I've seen, are, there's a, a couple. There are um, probably more changes uh, that are in the pension area and upcoming that will be added to new treaties than uh, than any other area, and that anticipates the retirement of the, the baby boom generation. Uh, and the other thing that I've seen, uh, in the, especially in the last uh, three to five years, are um, many more foreign entities uh, and foreign individuals are dealing with the treaty issues because uh, they have payments being made from accounts payable, and accounts payable has become a focus of the IRS. So there are a lot of... Uh, entities both big and small overseas who are, are trying to figure out uh, what they should be doing in order to take advantage of the treaties. Don, from a, a tax practitioner that maybe doesn't deal with this quite as extensively, what is, uh, what's it like, uh, what's likely for a client to come to you that would have tax treaty Im uh, implications? Um, well, uh, the tax inquiries I get normally uh, involve U.S. expats uh, off, offshore. This is expat in the sense of a person who leaves the country not giving up citizenship, which is one definition of expat, but an expat for tax purposes, which is to uh, uh, leave the country to either work 
overseas. Sometimes they marry and move overseas and work and raise families there. The other type of client I'm seeing a lot of are the professional and executive visa holders who uh, work for multinational companies who will, say, come to, in my case, Seattle for two to three or four years, perhaps from one country. They're in Seattle for a number of years and then on to a third country. They may or may not be U.S. citizens. Um, in the case of non-citizens, they may have interesting issues in the year they arrive and in the year they depart, which can be known as dual status years, where part of the year is technically as a non-resident and part as a resident. Particularly when you hear the term non-resident alien, you should be aware of it's worth checking tax treaties between the U.S. and the country of that person's residency, as most countries tax on the basis of residency in the United States basis on the on the basis of citizenship and residency. Okay, well let's get into some uh, some of the issues that maybe face us. Uh, we got a question in uh, that uh, will take us right into this from from our first discussion. I might have missed this, but is withholding required if the services are being performed outside the United States by a U.S. non-resident? Uh, actually, that gets into uh, the source of income rules that are under Section 861 of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, and uh, there's some good information in IRS Publication 515 on that as well. The source of income from services is where the services are performed. So if a non-resident alien who's only subject to tax on U.S. source income is performing services outside of the United States, that's foreign source income of a non-resident alien, not subject to U.S. taxes, even if they're being paid on a U.S. payroll. But you need to document it because payroll gets audited occasionally. <laughs> so if you're making payments to someone and you're not doing the U.S. withholdings, you want some documentation that shows they are a non-resident alien. Uh, a um, W-8BEN as a certificate of foreign status would be a good idea and document where the, the services are performed. Okay. Tony talked about withholding issues. What are some of the withholding issues that uh, that, that practitioners face? Uh, uh, what are some of the issues here? Oh, go ahead. Well, big issue is that 30% withholding that that uh, 30 uh, that uh, Tony uh, told you about, because that's um, uh, a focus in the accounts payable area now. If you're making payments of U.S. source income to foreign entities or non-resident aliens, that 30% uh, withholding applies. And uh, if you don't do the withholding and you don't have paperwork that allows you to have a treaty exemption, uh, then the payer is going to be liable for that 30% plus the uh, interest and penalties related to not withholding. And in dealing with the, the documentation to get the exemptions from um, the withholding, uh, a big issue is making sure that you have a U.S. taxpayer identification number on that 8233 or the W-8BEN because that's required for most payments. There are some exceptions in the financial industries, but for all other payments, uh, it's required. There are some exceptions. Um, for an 8233 if you can show evidence that it's been applied for. But if it's been applied for and you don't have it when you finally do reporting on a 1042S uh, and you have an exemption code 04 that says treaty exempt, then the IRS is going to be collecting that 30% that you should have withheld plus penalties and interests. So it's a, it's a big area of exposure. Now for an expat who's offshore but working for a U.S. employer, uh, there will be, if nothing else happens, uh, withholding exactly like if they left home. Now, Social Security and Medicare tax will continue to be withheld, and, and rightfully so, from such a person. There is a form, it's, uh, it's not coming into my head right now, that uh, can be submitted to a payroll office if the earnings are expected to, to be below the at or below the foreign during income exclusion, and they're expected to meet that exclusion, that they can reduce or eliminate uh, tax withholding not the Social Security and Medicare part. Do you know what form that is offhand? Uh, 673. There you go, <laughs> 673. Very good. We talked about residency. Let's spend a little bit of time with that. Uh, uh, I'm sure that that is also a, a major issue that, that comes into play. What are some of the factors here? Well, residency in terms of simply uh, a person who, who shows up in the United States uh, with a proper visa for work, or any other purpose, if they have, say, an L-1 or an H-1B visa, 
their residency will uh, essentially start with the day they land, I believe, in the U.S. Uh, and in a split year, they might have a period of non-residency in which you may want to consider doing uh, two different returns, a, a non-resident return for the first part of the year and a resident return for the second part. I haven't had too much call to do that often, but facts and circumstances will dictate. And if you have, again, non-resident, it's, it's time to be prepared to go and check the tax of a tax duty. Yeah, actually what happens is um, under this, what we call the substantial presence test, which is a 183-day rule, uh, if an individual's um, countable U.S. days add up to 183 based on 100% of the current year, a third of the days in the prior year, and a sixth of the days in the year before that, that individual is going to be um, a resident from their first countable day in the year. So they, um, and if they've been traveling to the United States on business, which frequently they are when you're dealing with uh, the, the L1s and the H1Bs, uh, they could end up having a, a, a very early residency start date based on our rules because of the business travel that they made before they even relocated here. And that's one of the areas where the, uh, the treaties can be helpful because uh, in the typical situation, the individual is still tax resident in the treaty country during that period uh, before they relocated here. So you can actually use uh, what's called a treaty tiebreaker rule that allows you to, when you have a dual resident, someone who's taxed in the treaty country but also tax resident here, you can use a treaty tiebreaker rule to, to uh, determine which country they're non-resident in, and in that early period they'd be non-resident here and resident there, and use that form, that 8833 form, to explain the facts and circumstances that support that they're a non-resident for um, a longer period here than they might be under the other exceptions um, for people in the year that they come here. I'd just like to add, Les, that um, if someone is going to use the tiebreaker rules under a tax treaty, they have to be considered a resident in both countries for taxation purposes. Um, if they are, if they're considered a, if they're what, under domestic U.S. law, they would be considered a resident, but because of the tiebreaker rules that they're a non-resident, they do have to attach the 8833, which is a mandatory form. And the physical pres uh, presence test being referred to here is for a non-resident to become considered a resident in another country. The 183-day rule or a variation of it is pretty well uniform across the world. Um, the physical presence test, as used here, can be confused easily with the physical presence test in order to qualify for foreign during income exclusion of a U.S. expat going offshore, which is a 330-day test that can start any calendar day and has to be 330 days within any 12-month period to keep that exclusion valid if they're applying under the physical presence test and not the bona fide, uh, bona fide residence test on a Form 2555 to exclude income. So we have to put every term, such as physical presence test, in the context in which it's to be used. Okay. We've gotten a lot of questions already in, so I'm going to try to work as many of these in. Uh, we've hit two areas, two issues here, withholding and residency. I'm sure there's a couple others, but let's, let's get to some of the questions. I have a new client who is a professional basketball player who plays overseas in Europe. Last year, he did not have any W-2s because he only filed his foreign income. He's married and files jointly. His wife does not work. He does not pay taxes in the U.S., but he paid taxes in Europe and has been under the foreign income exclusion amount. He bought a home in April of 2007 and was wondering if they could file and report interest on their return. Well, uh, there's a couple. I handle cases like this quite often. Uh, this is a professional basketball player, a U.S. citizen who is offshore playing in, uh, in this case, uh, various European countries for, I believe, probably a long enough time uh, to qualify under the, the physical presence test. That's the 330-day physical presence test. Uh, this hints, it doesn't say directly, that he may not have been filing U.S. tax returns, and indeed there is a requirement as a U.S. citizen or resident to always file a U.S. tax return reporting worldwide income, that's U.S. and non-U.S. income, from all sources. After which, 
he can apply apply on a form 2555 for a foreign earned income exclusion on that same return. Uh, and also, if applicable and foreign taxes were withheld, he can go to, with a form 1116, the foreign tax credit form, to number one, accrue the tax credits that can be used possibly, and then the second section of that form is the actual application of those tax credits against international income that has not been excluded under the Form 2555. Tax software is definitely recommended. Okay. Which brings up a, a question. We're talking about a, a U.S. citizen here who's playing basketball overseas. What about, this brings up the whole area of, of athletes and entertainers that not only go overseas, but also foreign athletes coming here and working in the United States. Is this an issue? It's, it's a very big issue, an area of great interest to IRS because we know that there, we have a lot of people coming over to perform in the United States for sporting events, musicians, that kind of thing. And the general rule is that they should have uh, withholding on their gross proceeds from their performances in the United States. That's the general rule. There are some treaty exceptions, uh, but they, they're quite limited, and so you would have to look to each individual treaty to see if a treaty exception might apply that would, would um, eliminate the need for the withholding. Um, and then with that, it would require the filing of the Form W8BIN. Uh, w um, there are provisions whereby a performer, athlete, or entertainer can enter into an agreement with IRS to have a reduced amount of withholding that would be more reflective of net proceeds as opposed to gross proceeds. And uh, that's of great benefit to those who are coming into the United States to perform. But an area that tax professionals really need to look into because it's an area of great focus right now for IRS. Actually, what happens on the... Uh the uh, treaty exemption side is uh, in order to be exempt under a treaty, they, if they're an employee, they have to meet the conditions of the dependent personal services or the employment income article. Uh, if they're an independent contractor, they have to meet the conditions of that. And most treaties have uh, an artist and athletes article, and their gross receipts for the year have to be under that uh, that maximum, because if they go over that, they don't get the treaty benefits. So it, it's uh, really complicated, and IRS uh, usually cautions against allowing treaty benefits in, until the end of the year. And then when you're dealing with the um, the payers, they, it's an 82-33 on the services side, but if you're dealing with payments that uh, eventually result from um, them being here, such as that would result in royalties, then it's going to be a W-8 Ben, mm -hmm. and they have to have taxpayer identification numbers. Uh, getting back to the, the U.S. basketball player offshore, the other question asked in here was that he bought a home in April of 2007 was wondering whether they could file and report the interest. Well, number one, should file. Uh, but number two, yes, the interest is uh, deductible, and that's whether the home he bought is in the U.S. or not in the U.S. The interest, mortgage interest, would still be deductible as long as it's the type of loan in which the house is collateralized by that loan. And, of course, he'd have to file. And he'd have to file regardless. Yeah. Uh, what if the withholding agent did not withhold the 30%? What are the consequences? Well, the, the consequences are that the withholding agent is liable for the tax. Um, they are required uh, as a withholding agent to do what we call due diligence to determine the beneficial owner of the income and withhold the proper amount to secure the documentation if the taxpayer is claiming a treaty benefit and if they fail to do the withholding, we can actually hold them liable not only for the tax but also penalty and interest. There are some mitigation rules. If you can prove that they paid their tax, um, you can, can mitigate some of that. But you have to prove they paid the tax. Okay. Uh, can you explain how the rolling 12-month period works that is found in many of the depend, uh, dependent personal service clauses found in the newer tax treaties? Ah, uh, yes, it works very well. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 330-day or the 183-day? That's the 183-day rule. What, what happened years ago, um, tax lawyers and tax accountants figured out that uh, when you had a 183-day rule with a fiscal year or a calendar year testing period, you could actually have somebody overseas um, and, and exempt for almost a year as long as you straddle the, uh, the two fiscal years. 
Uh, and then when the government figured out that that's what we were all doing, uh, they <laughs> changed the rules uh, quite effectively and put in this rolling 12-month period. So it's a 12-month it's a period that either begins or ends in the fiscal year. So when you're dealing with someone's tax return, you have to take a look. It's almost like that 330-day period uh, on the outbound side to determine um, whether in the period that starts in the year that you're looking at or ends in the year that you're looking at, uh, whether there's a 12-month uh, period that has over 183 days. So it, it effectively stopped that game. That <laughs> <laughs> Here's another question. I have a client who is a resident of the U.K. and receives a pension from the work performed in the U.K. This pension was taxed in the United Kingdom and has not been included in his income here. He became a U.S. citizen in July, and we are now wondering how this income or income should be handled. Well, as a U.S. citizen, he's going to have to report that income on a U.S. tax return, and it will indeed be taxed as if it was a domestic pension, but there is a legitimate question as to whether the UK can grant him some tax relief at that end, in which case the US-UK tax treaty has to be uh, explored in its fine print, sorry, in order to find out if the uh, it is possible for the UK to rebate or refund that tax. If it is, the next step would generally be to apply for a uh, Oh, the name of the form, a certificate of U.S. residence, and the application form is, I believe, 8802, was yeah, that? 8802. 8802, and that would then be presented to the U.K. tax authorities. I would, since I am not at all an expert in any tax system uh, other than the American tax system, advise that a, a person in this situation, any expat or dual world citizen have a tax pro in both the resident country and the current resident country and the country of origin or citizenship. Um, and in, in other words, both, both countries involved. If there's a third country involved, maybe a third tax professional. And hope for uniformity of information between the three, number one, so that it all adds up to something, and two, proper tax advice coming from the proper source and dependent on the country involved. If I could add that this seems like a classic case where we have double taxation that is not in accordance with the tax treaty, namely the United States-UK tax treaty. So if the uh, citizen cannot get relief over in, in the UK, then he might want to consider coming into competent authority with a, an official request, and we will try to help him. We will contact our counterparts in uh, UK and try to get relief from double taxation in that instance. Okay. Maybe spend a little bit more time with competent authority. What are we talking about here as far well, as competent authority? authority is, is part of the LMSB Office of Tax Treasury. Um, if someone, a U.S. person, needs assistance for uh, a treaty matter that is not in accordance with the treaty, they can file a request under RevProc 2006-54 with the uh, Deputy Commissioner International, who is the U.S. competent authority. And uh, we will... Look at the case, and if it has merits, in this case certainly sounds like it does, we will attempt to go to the you know, U.K. and uh, negotiate a settlement. Okay. And this uh, brings up, I think, the point that you mentioned earlier, Paula, about uh, the, the increase in, in pension income, dividend income. Uh, uh, I guess that's a real heads-up that, that, that practitioners need to, to be aware of who are going to be dealing with this. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge coming issue. There's going to be billions of dollars going both ways, probably. And you're going to be dealing with uh, individuals who are uh, retirees. And the, the treaties are very different one to another in the way they handle the, uh, the pensions and the Social Security payments. I mean, you can say there's a general rule that the country of residence gets to tax pensions, but there are a lot of treaties that, that have exceptions to that. And then there's a general rule that the, the source country, the one where the Social Security payments are, are made, gets to tax the Social Security payments, but there are some exceptions to that, too. Uh, and then um, the, um, the new model treaty and the new... Uh, protocols and treaties that are out there now have a lot more information on pensions in them. So it really is um, a big area of um, 
compliance issues that you're going to be dealing with for uh, for individuals who who are retired and need it done uh, efficiently. John, if there's not uh, a, a treaty uh, that, that that governs, who gets the tax bite? Uh, well, the tax bite generally can still be minimized, not eliminated perhaps, by virtue of the use of the two tools that I mentioned earlier, the foreign earned income exclusion and the foreign tax credit. Um, there is a lot of misconception and misunderstanding about that Form 1116, the foreign tax credit, uh, particularly amongst clients, but probably amongst practitioners too. And the, and the face one is, well, this amount of taxes was withheld over in X country, but yet I'm only getting this amount of tax credit. Why is that so? Well, the tax dollars that are actually credited are the at the U.S. rates. In other words, the only tax you can avoid the double taxation purely is the tax at the U.S. rate. Whenever the country, the, third, the second country involved, is a higher tax uh, country, there will be taxes, credits that you just simply can't apply to this income. Perhaps you can never apply them. They might just accrue forever if there's no if there's no advantage to carrying back which may be what one year we we have uh, found or forward up to either five or ten I guess there was a recent change there but quite often you find that they're just going to sit there and not be able to be worked off in future new tax credits will probably be generated against future foreign income and will continue there uh, so in lack of in lieu of a, of a uh, uh, treaty, you're just back to the compliance techniques built into the tax system, which are, between the tax credits and the foreign earned income exclusion, a pretty good stab at minimizing double taxation at the very least. Okay. I, I always refer to foreign tax credits as the client's opportunity to pay a practitioner to figure out who gets which part of their tax <laughs> Can't deny that. <laughs> With regard to prospective loss provisions under teacher researcher articles, can a payer allow treaty benefits if someone originally comes to the U.S. for a period expected to exceed the 24-month maximum, but then reduces their anticipated program duration partway through the program? Can the taxpayer file amended returns in this situation to claim the benefit of the withholding agent is not allowed to grant them the benefit once the program duration has been reduced? Well, what the IRS does when they're interpreting treaties is they look to the language in the treaty itself. And the prospective loss treaties um, say something like uh, you were, were invited to come to the United States for the purpose of teaching or research typically uh, for a period not expected to exceed two years. So it's looking at the time of the invitation or the time they temporarily came here. And if that changes after that time, it really doesn't impact how the treaty applies. I, I think that's an excellent question and kind of points to the need to look at the specific treaties the, for teachers in particular, but this is true for pretty much every type of income. Each treaty is different, and so some will be real focused on what the intent, the, the uh, planned time uh, for the teaching assignment is. Some will say that after a certain number of years, if you go beyond that, you begin being taxed. Once you go beyond that date, others will say it's retroactive. If you go beyond your expected period of time, then you have to go back to day one and pay tax, file amended returns and pay taxes for each of the years. So it's just very important, again, to look at the article in that treaty between the United States and whatever country the teacher comes from to see what the language says and, and also look at that technical explanation, which may have some examples in it. Yes, the technical explanation. I was just going to say it's very important to read a plain English discussion along with the treaty. It's not quite as daunting because treaties are written in, well, treaty language. And uh, it's, it can snow even the most uh, practiced professional, the language of the treaty. So you also like to look at a plain English explanation uh, of that treaty and then see if the, the technical language and the plain English explanation do ring true together and, and kind of go with that. It makes the job a little bit more decipherable. Okay. We're getting lots of questions, and as always, if we don't get to everybody's question, we will get the questions answered and posted on, on the website. I'll try to group these that maybe they hit on, some of them are hitting on the same topics. Uh, 
Some of the tax trees posted on the IRS site are extremely difficult to interpret. Can the IRS bring these up to date and provide clearer versions of the treaties? This gets back to what you were talking about <laughs> exactly. earlier. Exactly. Unfortunately, no, we can't uh, change the language of the treaties. That's the negotiated language. And uh, in reality, probably every word in that language has some specific reason for being there. The technical explanation is an effort to put it more in layman's language. And we do have the most current information on treaties on IRS.gov if uh, taxpayers go there to look at uh, what the latest versions mm -hmm. are. But uh, I'm sorry to say we can't make it, uh, we can't create an easier to read version of the treaties other than the official technical explanation. Okay. Any tips from the practitioners on um, making it any easier? Or where do you, where, where do you go for the information? Paula, you, you mentioned earlier that Years ago, it was all paper. Now it's uh, at least the, the websites and, and, and the internet. Yeah, the, um, there's great information out there um, on the websites, the government websites, the IRS websites, probably uh, one of the, the best ones out there. Uh, and Social Security Administration has a great website, too, because some people will be involved in dealing with the Social Security mm -hmm. treaties, uh, agreements which really come under Social Security. Uh, and not um, the IRS, but they uh, they can actually give some um, exemptions from tax when you're dealing with Social Security taxes in, in both countries, so those are very good. And um, generally, there are a lot of uh, excellent websites out there. If you just uh, go and, and Google these terms, you'll, you'll come up with some very uh, good information out there on, uh, on all of these things now. Okay. I go first also to the IRS website and the Social Security website for these two topics, particularly the search engine capability. If nothing else, just put in the word international in the search engine and see what pops up and then start to refine it from there based on your topic. I do also check other websites. I do find that there's probably some disinformation on some of those websites as well. If You've got to check who's putting the information out and what their credentials are for doing it. The other thing is there's some awfully old information. You find out that you're, you think you're reading current information and you find it's actually from 2001 or something. If it's that old, I wouldn't put too much faith in it. Since obtaining, an ITIN is, since obtaining an ITIN is a long process, one of my concerns is whether or not a U.S. tax ID number is required in order to consider Form W-8 or 8233 valid. Uh, it is required on a W-8 bin in order to get a treaty claim with the exception of uh, income on publicly traded investments. So most of the uh, payments that are being made through accounts payable um, you're going to have to have a W-8 bin that has a taxpayer identification number on it for it to be valid. And then um, there is an exception for the 8233 where if you have evidence of um, an application such as a, uh, an SSN receipt uh, that shows you applied for it or, uh, or you can actually send the form in to the ITIN unit uh, and apply um, on a W-7 form to get an ITIN. And uh, you can actually get pre-tax return um, ITINs now in some of the W-8 bin situations as well. But in that situation, you can't give the treaty benefit until you have the taxpayer identification number on the W-8 bin, where in the 8233 situation, you can give the treaty benefit even before you get the ITIN. But you better be sure you get the ITIN because by the time you issue the 1042S with the exemption uh, on it. If you don't have the tin, you're going to pay the tax. I've gotten questions on how can you tell the difference between a social security number and an I-10. Uh, and the main thing is, is that the first digit of the first three, the grouping of three digits, will start with a nine. And the second, uh, the first number of the second two digits will start with either a seven or an eight. So often if you're reviewing a prior year return and you see a spouse and two kids, you can, you can tell right off the bat whether it's a social security number, particularly for that spouse and for the kids or whether it's an ITIN. Generally, you can find that there's a mix. The youngest child is a citizen. The oldest child may not be. And you, you look for that disparity in the ITIN and Social Security numbers to just feel comfortable with it. And here's one that goes back to the globalization and, and the fact that we work internationally. If money was earned in international waters, can you exclude it from income? For example, a boat captain who goes back and forth to a rig in international waters. 
Well, time spent in international waters is not spent in another country, and unfortunately, um, that it does not qualify as days outside the U.S. for the purposes of the Form 2555 uh, Foreign Earned Income Exclusion. If you're dealing with a non-resident alien, there are some special rules um, having to do with uh, deal with Social Security uh, taxes uh, and. Uh, the rule of where the source of the uh, the income is also that so you can end up having um, someone who is um, on a a boat who is exempt from taxes uh, as long as they don't make port in the United States. I actually uh, advised uh, one client on that issue a number of years ago, and my advice was fire him before you make port, <laughs> which they did. <laughs> And save some taxes. Are itemized deductions for this? Are itemized deductions the same if residing in a foreign country? For example, if you are paying mortgage and interest property taxes on a residence in Canada, is that deductible on your 1040? For U.S. citizens residing in other countries, does everyone qualify for the foreign income exclusion? Any exceptions? For example, a person who is self-employed in another country or someone who owns a small hotel restaurant in a foreign country. Did you mention the term Area One? In that, or did I mishear you? No. Oh, okay. Um, well, generally, for uh, uh, Schedule A, several of the Schedule A deductions are very much the same. The interest and in, uh, mortgage interest and in property taxes, as we uh, addressed a few minutes ago, are deductible. In terms of contributions, however, uh, I believe a contribution must be to an approved, you know, 501 yeah. format of contribution. Therefore, if your favorite charity is something like uh, Physicians Sans Frontieres, or, uh, in, which is not based in the U.S., they do have a U.S. office called Doctors Without Borders. A contribution to Doctors Without Borders would be deductible, while a contribution to its parent would not be deductible, this whether you are in the U.S. or not in the U.S. making that contribution. There's a good discussion in IRS Publication 54 about um, foreign charities and U.S. charities and affiliates. That would would be very. And again, that's uh, linked uh, on our on our right. resource page, and uh, uh, just another reminder: if you haven't checked the resource page, there's a lot of good information. Yeah. And, there. and on the issue of the self-employment income, self-employment income is foreign earned income, um, uh, but there are some special wrinkles when you're dealing with self-employment because it's not net self-employment income; it's gross, and uh, that's also described very well in IRS Publication 54. Okay. Uh, uh, Tony, I know you, you, you don't work in, in, uh, in, in the compliance area, but as far as what the IRS is looking at, is there other, is there other cautions, I guess, that we could give to uh, any of our viewers on any topics that we haven't talked well, about? I would say the biggest caution is probably the documentation requirement for a withholding agent. I mean, that we're talking about penalties. We're talking about some big potential tax, tax liability. Uh, some of the other things that we've seen uh, is the foreign tax credit. Uh, if a person is entitled to reduce their tax overseas, for example, under a treaty, and they choose not to do that, then we don't consider that a mandatory payment. We, the IRS, we consider it a voluntary payment, and it would not be a creditable foreign tax. Just to add on to what Tony has said, also, if you pay the full 30% to a foreign country and you later get a refund of a part mm -hmm. of that, you have an obligation to file an amended return to do a foreign tax credit redetermination, and you have a specific period of time during which you're required to do that. So um, some countries will maybe not give you the reduced rate up front, but they will refund after the fact, and you, you have to make sure that you either only claim the reduced rate from the beginning or you amend your return after the fact. There's some good information on the IRS website on the redetermination. Yes. Too. If a non-resident alien has tax withheld on the sale of securities in the U.S. account due to not having a W-8 on file or because the W-8 had expired, can the non-resident alien file a 2008 Form 1040-NR return before the end of 2008 to obtain the refund on, on, on withholding? Before the end of the year? I don't know. No, no, not not before the end of the year. I don't think so. But what what you can do is um, in the current year you can give them a new W-8 Ben, um, and uh, it's at the discretion of the the payer. Uh, they can actually apply the new W-8 Ben to the earlier payments and refund it to you. But that's going to that will 
be a decision of the payer whether right, they are right. going to do that. And absent that, you have to wait till the end of the year, and then you would file your 1040NR, claim your credit that was withheld, and you would get a refund of uh, any overwithheld amount. Okay. Assuming the substantial presence test is met, would an individual be in violation of terms of an E-2 visa if he filed U.S. tax return as a resident alien? Which physical presence test are we talking? The inbound, the 330-day test would we talk? It, no. it doesn't say. So uh, the no. substantial, substantial presence test. test. Substantial presence test is met. Assuming the substantial presence test is met, would an individual be in violation of the terms of the E-2 visa if he filed U.S. returns as a resident alien? No. The, the immigration terms are separate from the tax terms. They certainly help determine whether you count your days or not for purposes of the substantial presence test, but once you're a resident under the internal law, you file a tax return as a, as a resident and you're taxed on low-wide income. Okay. Marty just mentioned that artists can enter an agreement with the IRS to reduce withholding to better reflect net proceeds rather than gross proceeds. How does an artist go about this? Um, well, we do have some information on irs.gov on central withholding agreements, so my recommendation would be to start there to determine how to proceed with that and also to talk to the agent, usually the agents um, of various venues that, that are where it's common to have uh, athletes and entertainers are familiar with the central withholding agreements, so I would recommend T looking on irs.gov and also talking to the agent or the the person responsible for the venue where the um, event will be held. Okay. I have a client that is a U.S. citizen and resident. He set up a Mexican company that purchased and sold some land at a profit. They paid the taxes in Mexico. How do I begin to handle this? Well, I would... Uh I would go the as a U.S. citizen, certainly has to file as a U.S. citizen resident and report the transaction. I would probably use the foreign tax credit uh, approach, the Form 1116, in order to get a tax credit against the Mexican taxes already withheld. I would have problems with that approach. Um, under the treaty, uh, I believe land is considered uh, real property, and there is a real property article in uh, I think Mexico would have the uh, uh, source-state taxation rights. So you would have to look to the, the U.S.-Mexico Treaty first, make sure that you're in accordance with it, because if, if you can get a, a refund from Mexico, you uh, then to. you should do that. You have to do that to get your credit. If, if, if you're in accordance with the, the treaty, then it would more likely be a, a good foreign tax credit. Right. Good point. Okay, if a partnership has a foreign non-resident partner, is that 30% withholding done on the distributions paid to the partner, or is it the allocated income? It's worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the withholding for on foreign partners is under uh, Section 1446 mm -hmm. of the Internal Revenue Code. And, um, and it's not at 30%. 30% is what's the, called the NRA withholding. Uh, it's actually at whatever the highest rate is for um, individual taxes, which mm -hmm. is 35%. Right. But there is good news on that. Um, I don't remember the exact implementation date, but there are new regulations. Um, there, there are temporary regulations right now whereby if, if the non-resident partner has losses or deductions, they can file for a certificate for reduced or withholding or exemption from withholding, taking into consideration those losses and deductions. And again, I would just refer to irs.gov um, to look at how to go about filling out one of these certificates of residence. They're filed with the Philadelphia campus. Um, so there is a means to get the withholding reduced if it's anticipated that there are losses or qualifying losses or deductions to offset the income. Okay. And it's not based on what's paid or distributed. It's based on what the profits are even if mm -hmm. not distributed. 
Well, a lively discussion. We got a lot of information out there, and we didn't get to all the questions. But as I mentioned, we will be placing the, the answers and questions on, on our website. But we did get a lot of questions, a lot of interest in this show, as, uh, as is indicated through what we talked about earlier, that the fact that this is a topic that uh, globalization has uh, made it a little bit different for the life of uh, tax practitioners. So thank you all for a very interesting discussion. Thank you. But before we close out, let's go back to Phyllis. That brings us to the end of today's program. But mark your calendars for Tuesday, May 13, 2008, for our next program, The Electronic IRS, More Than Just E-File. Remember that you will be able to view today's and other Tax Talk Today programs, and you can download the program via podcast by going to our archives. To receive CE credit for viewing today's program, click on Your Account, and fill out and submit the evaluation form. Don't forget to include the program ID number, which is 7608H. Again, that is 7608H, as in Henry. And we want your feedback, so send your comments to mail at taxtalktoday.tv. Finally, tell your colleagues to watch Tax Talk Today. I'm Phyllis Grimes. Have a great tax season. We'll see you in May. Thanks for watching. The Tax Talk Today series is brought to you by the Internal Revenue Service.